I love how um, parts of the service that you don't plan um, come together and complement uh, one another. Uh, Dave, with your, your prayer, and you know, I just felt like the response to all of that is, there is a Savior, um, Judy, that you played on the organ. I, I just uh, really appreciate how those two things uh, mix off of one another and uh, you know, just an openness to the, to the Holy Spirit kind of putting that together when there's everybody's doing kind of their own thing during the week and and thinking and praying and yet it's coming together and being fused together in our worship that's a just a really beautiful thing uh, to experience here this morning our youth did a, a great job last week I, I hope that you got to see it I wasn't here I wasn't feeling real well thank you for many texts and um, just checking up on me. We we're all, all good uh, later in the week, so we're, we've been all right. But I uh, just really appreciated uh, Michelle and, and the youth and, and all of their sharing last week in, in the service, helping to, to direct that. But also just the, um, the vulnerability of those young people sharing um, ways that they have uh, tried to be courageous uh, for Jesus. Uh, it it takes a lot, even that a little bit of sharing. Um, you know, some kids love getting up in front of people, and, and that's just kind of where they thrive. And others, that's not where they thrive, or that's not where they, they enjoy. Um, and so I just really appreciate uh, hearing from each of them last week. If you didn't get to see that, uh, it's on YouTube. You can go find our YouTube channel and uh, watch what they shared last week. Well, this is a, a challenging text. Uh, I was reading through it. A couple other people were reading through it this week. And, um, you know, it's not exactly a, a pick-me-up kind of passage. It's a, a lengthy um, place where Jesus is addressing some really tough stuff and uh, just kind of, I, I think, preparing his followers, preparing his, his disciples for what is to come in the future. It's challenging because of what Jesus said. It's made more challenging because of what some of us have thought Jesus said and made more challenging because the reality makes us uncomfortable. And so as we look at this passage uh, out of uh, Luke 21 this morning, would you pray with me? God, I thank you for the way that you are moving in our midst. And we can sense that. And as we open up a, a, a tough passage, um, I pray that you would continue to speak uh, to our hearts. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me give you a little bit of a, a snapshot as to where Jesus is at and why Jesus gets to this particular uh, teaching here in uh, chapter 21. At the beginning of chapter 20 of Luke, Jesus goes and begins to teach at the temple. We call him a rabbi, and rabbis go to the temple to teach. Uh, and it's worth noting that Jesus isn't making a whole lot of friends since much of his teaching is against the religious elites of the time. And so he goes to the established place of worship and all of the established leaders of that worship, Jesus is kind of, you know, watch out for the scribes, watch out for the Pharisees, watch out for the Sadducees, watch out for... You know, so Jesus isn't, you know, 
really endearing himself to the religious establishment at this moment. Much of Jesus' teaching in these chapters is oriented against that religious establishment. Not, not a lot of good to say about the Pharisees and the scribes in this passage. And, and he's going to talk uh, here about the destruction of the building itself, which was central to the, the, the Jewish faith. Everybody came uh, during the times of festivals to Jerusalem because this is where God resides in the temple. So Jesus is going to talk about that building, that temple coming down. Just a, maybe by way of thought experiment, uh, I want you to, you don't have to close your eyes, but if that helps you, you can close your eyes. Um, and substituting the building here at Spring Creek for the temple, when you hear this passage read, to get a sense of how uncomfortable Jesus' discussion might have been. Imagine that for a moment. When some were speaking about the Spring Creek Church, how it was adorned with beautiful white brick and large columns, a stained glass window, and golden carpet, that's the color description I'm going with here, and gifts dedicated to God, he said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. I'm curious for some of you uh, that have been here for a long time, how does that make you feel if you're kind of substituting Spring Creek's building for the temple? Sad. Sad. Any other emotions that would come through? Somebody shows up and says, I tell you, not one of these bricks will remain standing. Scared? Anger? Who are you to say my bricks are going to be gone? I'm sorry, what? Trauma. Okay. Yeah. You're, yes, you're not serious. This building was built in this date. You're not tearing that down. You can't be serious. Surprised? I mean, I mean, I can imagine that would be a hard thing to hear and accept. And now it's Jesus who you're following, um, you know, who you are orienting your life around, who says, I tell you, not one of these stones will remain. So we can, I, I mean, you know, you put yourself in, in the shoes of the, that first audience, um, you start to feel a little bit of uh, how they might have felt hearing Jesus show up and announce this. Although it's interesting to look at his audience's reaction of the people that are actually gathered around Jesus. And they asked him, teacher, when will this be? They don't ask, are you serious? Are you out of your mind? You know, they don't express a whole lot of sadness. They, they seem to be accepting that Jesus is someone different. That, that maybe he has more insight into what's going on than others around us. And so they want to know, when will this happen? At least this audience seems to accept that Jesus has some kind of authority to speak on these issues. 
They don't respond as, you know, maybe some of us would over my dead body or over your dead body. But imagine the shock of hearing that this vast building that took years, decades to build would come crashing down. Jesus said to them, and I can't emphasize these next words of Jesus enough in interpreting this passage uh, because I think often these words have been dropped so many times. Beware that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. It says, in fact, when you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom something that we're familiar with, something that we've experienced, natural disasters, human-made disasters. These are the stuff that really make up all of history. Somehow in our time, we have a war or a disaster, and people start looking at one another saying, it's a sign of the times. But when haven't these been signs of the times that they're in? Jesus goes on, but before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify, an opportunity to testify, to share in word and deed what you know to be true. This persecution, he says, is presenting an opportunity to bear witness to a new world that's already breaking in, uh, a new world that is already breaking into the old. And so he says, make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, which is interesting to me. Um, I, I like to be prepared for a test um, most of the time, um, but, but he's, you know, And I think there's a difference between being prepared, thinking through our life, thinking through our commitment and our faithfulness. I think Jesus would advocate for us, you know, thinking through some things first. But in those moments, opening ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and the way God is moving in our midst and in our life and in that situation in the given moment. says, for I will give you the words and the wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. And I read that and I, you know, maybe you're thinking this morning, thanks, pastor. Really appreciate sharing the good news this morning. This passage does something interesting in talking about winning and losing. And it seems like sometimes in the church we need to reorient our ideas of winning and losing. Jesus basically says, look, if, they, if they're doing this to me, 
We look at the the story of Jesus. If they crucified God in the flesh, what makes us think that we should experience less? In fact, it's in the very act of giving up his life that Jesus conquers. Death is defeated not by avoiding it, not by going around it, not going under it, not going over it, going through it. And coming out on the other side. In a recent uh, Christianity Today article, uh, Russell Moore talks about Jesus teaching to turn the other cheek and how uh, many Christians are, are saying um, and believe that that's not just practical. It's not practical to turn the other cheek. And Moore concludes his article by saying, if they think turn the other cheek seems hard, wait until they get to take up your cross and follow me. I think sometimes in the church, and in particular in the American church, we've often opted for winning over faithfulness. We've opted for winning over faithfulness. Currently, the broader American church is seen in a fight for uh, control in a number of ways, political control, social control, all those things, fighting any number of culture wars, demanding that everyone should act like us because, of course, we have it all together, right? What Jesus offers here is a pattern and opportunity to be faithful. And if the church really wants to influence society, if we want to to be an influence on our neighbors, we want to be an influence on the systems around us, we want to be an influence for the vulnerable and the marginalized, we want to be an influence on, on the powerful and the connected. And you know what? I actually believe that the church should be an influence We need to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to, to live lives dedicated to seeking Him and His kingdom, to loving God and to loving our neighbors, and to forming disciples. You look a little bit historically at what it looks like for the church to be faithful rather than trying to win. It starts with a a small group of followers of Jesus Fishermen and tax collectors, questionable characters, women who financially supported Jesus and who actually stay by the cross. It starts by the, this, this small group of people who aren't out to, you know, like overthrow Caesar. They're out to go into all the world and make disciples of Jesus, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're going and and they're enacting the the crazy words of Jesus. They're trying to turn the other cheek. They're trying to to love people. They're trying to be near the, the vulnerable, be near the sick, be near the hurting. That's their strategy. And over the next 200 years, they face these wars and they face these rumors of wars and they face these persecutions. Jesus, part of Jesus' words are, are fulfilled pretty shortly after his, 
his uh, ascension in 70 AD, Rome comes to Jerusalem to squash a Jewish rebellion and destroy, they destroy the temple in the process. The early church experienced waves of persecution. Roman officials who are misunderstanding what the group is about. And for sure, the early church, sometimes we, uh, you know, kind of have this idealized version of what they were like and, you know, it was just people sitting around the campfire singing kumbaya at the end of the night. That's, no, they had their struggles. It got messed up pretty quick. Not perfect. And certainly moments of unfaithfulness mixed in, but generally faithfully following the way of Jesus. And in those 200 years uh, after Jesus, the church grows into the millions from a, a small group of people just trying to faithfully follow Jesus, live together, worship together, um, live out the words of Jesus together. We've talked in, in the last couple of months about um, how they were, some folks have said, live questionable lives. Another author talks about how the kingdom grows through uh, fascination. People that were looking in in the Roman world, seeing the different way these Christians were living and had lots of questions and, and wondered exactly how this works and we need to know more and why are they doing this? Why are they caring for one another? Why are, why are they paying each other's bills? Why are they supporting each other when they're sick? Why, why are they doing all of these things? Never once did the church seek to confuse the kingdom of Rome with the kingdom of heaven. Now, eventually, history tells us that does happen, that the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of God get mingled and confused. And I would suggest that it wasn't a good thing for the church and reflected very poorly on Jesus when suddenly... You know, those that are claiming to follow Jesus are putting others to the sword and killing them because they won't convert. That doesn't reflect well on Jesus who gives his life up, who dies on the cross. These followers of Jesus didn't seek to force pagan Romans to be something they weren't. They didn't fight those culture wars. For sure, within the church, certain behaviors were expected. Careers that were viewed by the church as incoherent with the teachings of Jesus, folks were expected to, to leave those careers, to or reorient their life towards Jesus. And so it wasn't that there weren't expectations. There were very clear expectations of what it meant to follow Jesus. But the church's influence came through faithfulness to Jesus through the wars they experienced, through the natural disasters that, that happened, through the persecutions the church cared for the sick and the poor. They worked to take care of each other's financial needs. They committed themselves to the peaceful way of Jesus, not because it worked, but because it was faithful. So where's the good news in this? Jesus is talking about the reality that, that his followers might have to suffer 
might have to deal with persecution. They might have to deal with some hard situations. Where's the good news? Is the Christian life just about suffering? No, not all. Jesus here in this passage is preparing his followers for realities that he knew they were going to face. Realities that Christians in different times and places have continued to face throughout history. The security that you and I enjoy in the church in America is is somewhat of an aberration in church history and the church globally. But the good news is that through the suffering on the cross, Jesus does win. It really doesn't seem to be winning until Sunday morning. At first, it looks as though everything is lost. Self-sacrificial love is the way that Jesus wins. Giving himself up on the cross is the way Jesus wins wins. No swords, no armed mobs, no voter drives, phone calls, text messaging to come out and vote. None of the stuff that you've been experiencing here recently. Thank goodness that's over for a time. Self-sacrificial love is the way Jesus conquers. The church in the West and the church in the United States has become used to access to power. And there's pros and cons to that. Universities and hospitals that uh, largely started because of the church, those are really good things. Value of individuals based around the imago Dei or realizing that all humans are created in the image of God and all humans have worth, that's a good thing. That's something that's kind of um, become a part of Western society, and maybe we've taken that a little bit far now with excessive individualism. But I think in the church, we need to relearn the lessons from Jesus and from the early church in our own history at Spring Creek Church of the Brethren of the first brethren who were willing to lay down their lives and faithfully follow Jesus in baptism, of the early church who would suffer extensively and yet whose winsome ways would draw millions to the suffering servant Jesus Christ, the lessons of Jesus himself whose self-sacrificial love actually wins through death. But for me, and I was continuing to reflect on this passage this morning as I was driving in, what's, what's the key phrase or the key idea or the key word that I want you to hear out of this passage? And it comes in that very last verse, by your, and what's the word there? You can look it up in your Bible. By your, can you, can you pull, what, say it again? Endurance. Endurance. By your endurance, you will save your souls. Not by shortcuts, not fizzling out partway through the race. We talked a couple weeks ago about how uh, the journey of faith is, is a marathon. And I got to be honest, I'm not a marathon person. I, I do not like running long distances. Give me short sprints anytime over the long distance nonsense. 
it talks about our endurance of faithfully putting into practice the teaching and the example of Jesus. That idea of enduring, uh, of, of having endurance in a race. This is the journey of faith that the church is called to. It's interesting, I've, um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, the church gets all kinds of um, junk mail, um, and, and we've had uh, a number of things coming in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if it was necessarily related to the election uh, or, or not, but it was all kinds of like, you know, um, end times things. Like, this is the moment. Here's the Antichrist. I got a book that was, here's the Antichrist. We want you to know who the Antichrist is. And, 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 and here's, you know, here's those signs. Here's those things. And I open up this passage and, you know, Jesus is like, wars, rumors of wars, disasters. Yeah, it's going to happen. You're going to experience it. Don't go running after the, the latest person's version, you know, of, of what's, what's happening here. I think trying to understand our times and trying to understand uh, where things are, are going is, is a natural thing that we all want to know the answers to. Um, but in this passage, Jesus is focused in on endurance, of maintaining the faith, of following Him, whether it looks like winning or not, to be faithful by your endurance, you will save your souls. This morning, I'm going to invite our response. I invite you to stand and turn in your blue hymnal to number 575. Precious Lord, take my hand. We don't walk this alone. We don't go through this journey alone. We don't run this race alone. We don't endure alone. Jesus is with us. Jesus is holding our hand. The Holy Spirit is going with us. And we gather as church week in and week out to remind one another that we don't run this race alone, but we are surrounded by others who are running with us, who are enduring with us. Okay, so stand as we close in this song.